Well, uh, this morning, before I begin, I would like to lift up two points. They're free of charge. You don't have to put anything more in the offering plate, just because I'm adding these two additional points to what I'm going to share this morning. But uh, the first point is, I want to make sure that you know that uh, I promise you that I will not make every sermon about me or about my life. Um, That's important for you to know because uh, I am going to be sharing a little bit about uh, my story this morning, but I don't want you to leave here thinking, gosh, I wish he'd talk about somebody else but besides himself. Um, Yet you can't really preach a sermon or a series like I'm trying to preach, and I would suggest that you can't really listen to a sermon that I'm preaching without some of your own personal life experiences bubbling to the top. And sometimes those life experiences end up being the best illustration that you could use in order to make your point. And so I don't want you to think that just because I'm up here talking about myself for the second time in a few weeks that this is going to be something that you need to be worried about. I trust that my clergy colleagues will tell me, okay, Tommy, we've heard enough about you. Move on to another illustration. Uh, The second thing that I want to make sure that you are aware of, the second point before I begin preaching the sermon today, is that I've spent a lot of years... um, learning not to blame my parents for the environment in which I was raised. Uh, I um, have learned that family dysfunction is generational. Uh, It's passed down from one generation to the other. And, And I really believe that in my particular instance, that my parents both tried to do things differently. They both tried to make some changes that they hoped would result in my life being a little less dysfunctional than their lives had been when they were raised as children. But one of the things, if you were raised in a dysfunctional home that maybe sometimes gets lost, is that because that environment is the only environment that you've ever known, you sort of think that that environment is just normal, that that what you're experiencing in your family of origin is what every family experiences in their unique situations. And because we tend to normalize so much of what happens in our families, thinking, well, that's just the way everybody else's family uh, is, uh, there are dysfunctional thoughts and feelings that we've normalized that unknowingly get passed on to generation, to generation, to generation. And I felt like I wanted to say that or that I needed to say that this morning because I I do believe that my parents tried to make my life less dysfunctional than the lives that they had when they were growing up. Uh, but that unknowingly some of that stuff just kind of filters down. And what I don't want you to think is to coin a phrase that I've heard some of our younger people use. I am not, uh, when I talk about my dysfunctional family that I grew up in, trying to throw shade on my parents, right? I'm not trying to cast blame on my parents. Because one of the things that I've learned is that blame 
does nothing to stop the generational cycle of dysfunction. It serves no good purpose in my life to blame my parents for the circumstances that I grew up in. And blaming my parents also doesn't help me to become the person that God created me to be. And that's the essence of what this sermon series is about. Becoming the person and embracing the person that God created us to be. But I did, and I was raised in a dysfunctional home. My father was an alcoholic. Uh, my home was really, really chaotic growing up. Um, it, was, it was not a, a great situation. And, and if you were raised in any kind of dysfunctional home, one of the things that happens to children raised in those type of environments, whether you realize it or not, is that you begin to develop coping mechanisms you begin to develop survival strategies to just try to get through this awful environment in which you've been raised. And, and the weird and the interesting thing about these, these coping mechanisms or strategies that we develop is that the larger culture loves them. The larger society applauds them. The larger society looks at some of these coping mechanisms and says, that's really a noble trait. I, I like seeing that in somebody else. And, and, and yet, if you were raised in a dysfunctional home and these traits were developed as your way of coping with the dysfunction, those things become huge stumbling blocks for you as you begin to grow up. So the world thinks they're great, but they can become huge stumbling blocks for you uh, if that applies to you. Let me give you a couple examples. One of my coping mechanisms that I learned in my, in my dysfunctional family was my sense of humor. I realized that every day was really stressful in the home that I grew up in. I never knew whether or not my parents were going to get in some sort of uh, physical or emotional altercation. I never knew if anger was going to be directed at me. But I did know that when the situation got really stressful, if Tommy could crack a good joke, it would take the edge off of the stressful situation. And so that's what I would do, you know. Times would get really, really stressful, and I began to realize insert joke here, or practical joke here, and it would take the edge off of that situation. And we're going to talk more about taking the edge off of things next week, but that was one of my coping mechanisms to try to take the edge off. But here's what I learned, that sometimes life's greatest lessons are when you allow yourself to feel those uncomfortable feelings that I was working so hard not to feel and that's why I was interjecting my sense of humor. And, and, and so um, that becomes a stumbling block as you get older because you're, you're, anytime you get in a stressful situation, instead of allowing you to feel that stressful situation and to learn what you might need to learn from that stressful situation, you just tell a joke. Well, perfectionism was another one of those coping mechanisms that I learned as a child growing up in my dysfunctional home. And the reason why perfectionism became one of those coping mechanisms for me, I don't know where I learned this or how I came to believe this, but I was convinced as a child that if I just acted perfectly, that my father wouldn't abuse alcohol. 
I had it in my mind that the reason why my dad drank excessively night after night after night after night was because I kept messing up. And so, whether it, was making, whether it was because I didn't close the refrigerator door after I'd opened it, whether it was because uh, I was too loud when my dad was trying to go to sleep, whether it was because I'd lost my lunch money, whether it was because me and my brother would get into a fight, or whether it was because I didn't clean my room when I was supposed to clean my room, or whether it was because I was stand, sitting too close to the television when I was watching it, I was, I was convinced that my dad drew drank excessively because I kept messing up. And then, after I began to think about that, well, if the reason why daddy's drinking is because I keep messing up, what if I could do things more perfectly? What if I did close the refrigerator door after I opened it? What if I didn't get so loud when uh, my dad... Um, was trying to sleep. What if, if I wanted to beat up my brother, I just did it when daddy wasn't around? You know what? Maybe then daddy wouldn't drink. And so I decided that that's the way I was going to try to live my life. And I began trying to do all of those things perfectly. And there were three realizations that came up as a result of doing that. The first realization is when I was trying to do all of those things that I thought were responsible for making my dad drink, my dad didn't even notice. You know, I could go weeks with making sure, you know, back then the the refrigerator door didn't beep at you when you left it open. And so you had to make sure that you shut it. And I could do that for weeks and weeks and weeks. And my dad never once came up to me and said, Tommy, I I couldn't help but notice over the last several weeks you've done a decidedly better job of making sure that the refrigerator door was closed when you closed it. And I just want to thank you for that. Never once did my dad acknowledge that I was trying to live more perfectly. The second realization that I had was that I couldn't be perfect. It didn't matter how hard I tried, uh, eventually I would fail in my quest for perfection. You know, maybe I was getting ready to clean my room because I thought that that would help my dad to stop drinking when all of a sudden a friend called and said, let's go outside and play. And so I wouldn't clean up my room. Or, or, Or maybe right when I was getting ready to close the door of the refrigerator, the the doorbell rang, and and so I ran off to answer the doorbell, and I left the refrigerator door slightly ajar. I realized that no matter how hard I tried to be perfect, I couldn't always be perfect. And the third realization that I realized was that my dad didn't stop drinking. No matter how many times I did all of those things well or right, he never stopped drinking because of those things. And in my mind, the reason why Daddy didn't stop drinking was because of realization number two, I couldn't always be perfect. Eventually, I was going to mess up. And so as a child, what ended up happening is that I realized if I tried to be perfect, I wasn't going to be. I had two options, as best I could tell as a child. I could keep trying to be perfect and know that ultimately I was going to fail. Or I could look at things and say, there is no way that I'm going to be able to do that perfectly, 
So why even try to do it at all? In the first instance, when I would just keep trying, but knowing that ultimately I was going to keep failing, the end result of that always was external criticism. My dad was always, no matter how many times I'd closed that refrigerator door, as soon as I didn't, he was going to let me know it. But there was also something that I didn't really expect. There was an internal criticism that began to. Every time that I would try to be perfect and fail, I would have this critical inner voice in my head saying, you, you're such a worthless human being. You can't do anything right. You'll never be good enough. You're always going to disappoint people. You're always going to disappoint yourself. And the scary thing about that voice is that I attributed that voice to God. It wasn't Tommy saying, you're worthless. You'll never be good enough. You're always disappointing me. It was the voice of God. And so, that was the two things. When I, would, when I would fail, I would hear that inner voice and that external voice, and it hurt. And then if I just decided that because I can't be perfect at it, I'm not going to do it at all, boy, I've missed, I can't tell you how many things I missed out on growing up. Because I knew that I couldn't do it perfectly the first time, and so I didn't even try it at all. And and what nobody bothered to tell me is that sometimes it's the hard things, sometimes it's the things that you aren't good at at first, but that you keep doing over and over again that eventually become some of the most meaningful and rewarding experiences of your life. But because I was so aware of my imperfection, and, and so scared of being imperfect, I didn't do it at all. And so much of that um, creativity was stifled. And I do believe that it impaired my ability to grow into the person that God created me to be. And in both of those instances, the end result was this. I didn't love myself. And I was convinced that no one else loved me either. But we're in week two of this sermon series. It's based on Brene Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection. And in my hope and my prayer is that we walk through these ten weeks together, that we will let go of some of the things that uh, prevent us from embracing and becoming the children of God that God created us to be that we would let go of trying to live the way that we think others want us to live or the way that we're supposed to live and that we would just embrace who it is that God created us to be. And many of us within the sound of my voice today struggle with this idea of perfectionism. And this idea of perfectionism, I believe, prevents us or impairs us from being able to be the people that God created us to be.
You know, Brene Brown says that there's a huge difference between perfectionism and striving to do the right thing, striving to do good, be good at whatever it is that you do. Brene Brown says that at its root, at its core, perfectionism is not about self-improvement. It's, it's not about improving yourself. That perfectionism at its core is doing what we do in an effort to try to earn the approval and the acceptance of other people. That at its core, perfectionism is about doing what we do because we believe that our worth or our value or our lovability is dependent upon what we do and how well we do it. Brene Brown says that what perfectionism really is about, it is is an attempt by us to minimize or to avoid blame and shame and judgment. And there's a good chance that if you are a perfectionist, that you are high in criticism and low in compassion. Not only in the way you view yourself, but in the way you treat others. You're high and quick to criticize, and you're low or slow to have compassion for other people. That brings us to our text this morning. A scribe goes up to Jesus and says, you know, there are hundreds of commandments, but what would you say, Jesus, is the most important commandment? And so Jesus strings together two of those commandments, and He says the most important commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And what sometimes gets lost in the translation of this text and of this verse is that, is that if you are going to fulfill the second part of that commandment and you are going to love others, then you first have to know how to love yourself. That you can't love others rightly if you don't love yourself rightly. And if you want to know how to love yourself rightly, it begins by considering how God loves you. See, when God created you and me, God didn't create us to be perfect. God created us to be human. Imperfect. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to give your best. It doesn't mean that God wants you to try your best, but when we fail, and we will, we don't need to be overly critical with ourselves. We need to know that the God we worship and adore, contrary to what you've heard, and unfortunately many of us heard it in the church, God does not relish playing the blame, shame, and judgment game. 
In fact, whenever you think about God's judgment from this time and evermore, what I want you to couple that sense or that idea or that that concern about God's judgment with is that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And what I want you to know is that when you mess up, when I mess up, that God's greatest desire in that moment, as I said last week, is just to reach down when we miss the mark, when we fall short of the target, and just lift us up and say, you know what, I still love you. My love is not dependent upon you being perfect. Um, It doesn't matter if you uh, leave the refrigerator door open. It doesn't matter if you fight with your brother. It doesn't matter if you're too loud when your father's trying to sleep. It doesn't matter if you lose your lunch money. It doesn't matter if you sit too close to the TV. It doesn't matter if you didn't clean your room when you were supposed to clean your room. My love is not dependent upon any of those things. I love you because you are my beloved child. I love you just the way you are. You are enough to receive my love. You don't have to be perfect. So, just be the way you are. I want you to love yourself the way I love you. And when you love yourself that way, it will then help you to love your neighbor. But I want you to love you the way I love you. And then that will help you love and show compassion to others. So since today's title of the sermon is Letting Go of Perfectionism, that's the invitation for you this morning. I'm not saying... Don't try your best or don't give your best. But what I am saying is don't beat yourself up. If I could quote the great theologian Kelly Clarkson, um, she's got a new song out right now that speaks to the heart of what I think this sermon is about today. You may be broken, but you're beautiful. You may be broken, but you're beautiful. So be kind to yourself. Let go of the need to be perfect. Don't be critical of yourselves or of others. But cultivate a life of compassion. Not only to yourself, but to others. There's no greater example of the love of God than I think this table Because you remember on the Last Supper when Jesus was gathered there for the last time before His crucifixion, that Jesus made sure that there was a place at the table for the one who would betray Him. His betrayal didn't limit Jesus' love for Him. Jesus made sure that He included at the table the one who would deny Him three times before the rooster crowed. Apparently His betrayal didn't stop Jesus from loving Him. And lest you be, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that there were a bunch of perfectionists that were gathered around that table there that night too. They were all arguing about who's the best, who does it the best, who should be able to sit at the seats of honor with Jesus around the table. There was a bunch of perfectionists there that night and Jesus didn't 
Jesus didn't preclude them from coming to the table when they would eventually leave him and desert him. Jesus made sure that every one of his children had a place at that table. And so deeply did he love those that betrayed and denied and deserted him that the fullest expression of that love is that he was willing to go to the cross. He was willing to die as the ultimate expression of his love. So in that spirit, knowing that you don't have to be perfect, receive this invitation.